What's up, sports fans? It's time for Let Me Speak. I'm Joe Braverman, and on this show, we discuss the big news in the world of sports as heard from me, myself, and I. Here's what we'll be talking about this week. We preview the MLB postseason along with a special guest. Plus, the biggest games from NFL Week 4 and which teams are making headlines into Week 5. And did Damian Lillard just make the Bucks NBA title favorites? You're listening to episode 88 of Let Me Speak. Time to get things started. Intro, please. Let me speak. Hello once again. We are back coming to you on Tuesday, October 3rd, 2023 for the 88th edition of Let Me Speak, the sports podcast that had a a year and a half going, then took a break, and now we're back again. So thank you everyone for tuning in wherever you are getting this podcast. We've got a tremendous episode lined up for you. But before we get into the weeds, let's talk about the week That was, at least here in the Massachusetts area for me, we're transitioning into football season over at WEEI, and finally the sun is out. And I did say it was October 3rd. It's not feeling like October 3rd. It's hot out there. It's making it feel like summer is still here, which I'm kind of happy about, considering the fact that summer was basically lost and filled with a bunch of rain and cloudy weather. So it's going to be, I know at least when I'm done here, I'm going to get outside going to enjoy that nice weather. You know, maybe during the week I might play play around a golf. I wanted to get out there and golf a little bit more often, but I'm very happy to see the warm weather. Um, but of course, we are stuck inside. We got to do this podcast, and we're going to start this one off with a bang. We're going into the MLB postseason. I thought there's no one better to help me out than a special guest of mine. So I'm going to throw it to my chat earlier today with Cooper Leonard. So as I said, we got a special guest joining us here to preview the MLB postseason. I couldn't think of anyone better. He's our video streamer over at WEI for our midday show, Gresh and Fourier. But you can also check him out on the Baseball Isn't Boring podcast from Odyssey with the one and only Rob Bradford. I'm thrilled to have Cooper Leonard join us as a special guest. Coop, what is going on? Thanks for taking the time on this podcast. Oh, hey, how's it going, Joe? Happy to be here. Happy to finally be on. This has been a long time coming. Uh, I know. The Red we... Sox didn't, they didn't really give us too much to talk about this year, so things <laughs> kind of got pushed back. But I'm glad that we're doing our season end recap and kicking off the playoffs in style. So thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. I mean, we'll get to the Sox in a little bit, but I think uh, let's just talk about this season itself. Obviously, you being the big baseball guy, we've seen you on the Bradford Show on WEEI. Of course, many uh appearances on baseball and boring and who says no so you are very in tune to what's happened in the MLB season so just give me just really quickly like who was maybe the biggest surprise that you saw in the MLB and maybe who was the most disappointing the team maybe you didn't think was going to be that successful and the team you didn't really expect to struggle as much as they did uh I I think right off the bat you have to go with the Mets for being the team that you didn't expect to struggle of course it's the Mets and it at the end of the day, it checks out that they were to be the team that they ended up being uh, just in Mets fashion. But to be a spending over $300 million in a year and on names that you would expect to perform, even though they are at the end of their careers, you know, 
Scherzer, Verlander, you would expect these guys to kind of pick it up. They did somewhat for, for the new teams that they ended up going to halfway through the year, not to the point where they were actually included on some of the postseason rosters. I know, I believe Verlander or Scherzer were left off uh, the Rangers. So it's kind of, it's interesting to see what happened with them. It's sad to see what happened to them, having had some Mets fans from college and whatnot. I, <laughs> I empathize with them, but one of the, in, one of the very interesting conversations I had with a buddy of mine, uh, and, it, and it's interesting comparatively to what the Red Sox did, because a lot of people I think would be mirroring that whole uh, you're a big market team and you disappointed your fans by not competing. But what the Red Sox did was a whole lot different because uh, they didn't really go out and compete the way that the Mets did. The, the Mets ownership and Steve Cohen, Uncle Cohen, he went out and actually gave Mets fans something to have a little bit of optimism about. And uh, what my friend kind of told me, he was like, yeah, even though that they were out of it for a majority of the year, for half of the year until they actually pulled the plug, there was a, a sense of, well, maybe things can turn around. That's what we put this money towards. And he kind of rested his hat on on the fact that like, hey, things didn't work out. It ended up being an epic failure, but you can hang your hat on that. The ownership actually cares to try and go out and win something. Yeah, owning up to it at least is a good thing. Exactly. And and John Henry not being at the the presser, uh, that makes things a little difficult to say the same for the Red Sox. But I would say the Mets were probably the biggest disappointment this year, just because I would have liked to have seen what they were able to do. Uh, Biggest surprise? might be the Diamondbacks. The Diamondbacks really showed up in a division that's really tough in the NL West. You were expecting the Padres, another big spender. Uh, less surprising that they flopped because I feel like they were forcing a lot of their deals. And I, it's coming back to bite them right now, especially with the way things are going to shake up going forward. But the Arizona Diamondbacks have been a nice little story. Mike Hazen bringing things together after six years. It, it'll be, I don't, I don't think they can go too far in the playoffs. They're going to have a tough matchup but I think playing in the NL West all season playing the Giants which were an impressive team even though they couldn't really field things out the Padres were a competitive team even though they never really had any chemistry in their clubhouse uh they were able to compete with the Dodgers yeah it was that's kind of nice to see that's the watermark in the in MLB right now if it's not the Braves it's the Dodgers who you want to be and to be able to kind of stay in that race with them throughout the NL West, it it shows that they can maybe hang around in the playoffs. So they're going to be my team to watch yeah, uh, that's, as things come around. Yeah, that's a that's a great segue into it because you mentioned the Dodgers and you mentioned the Braves. Those are two of the teams with the National League buys. In the AL, it's the Astros and the Orioles. So I just want to ask you really quickly, obviously everyone's eyes are turning towards how good the Braves were and that the Dodgers were right behind them. Is it pretty much Braves, Dodgers, and then the rest of the field? Or is there is there a team like the Orioles that can maybe surprise someone? And maybe if it's a World Series between Braves and Orioles or Braves-Astros, they could knock them off? I think it's Braves and then everyone else. I don't even want to include the Dodgers in that conversation. Uh, the Dodgers are a great team, and Mookie Betts is Mookie Betts. He, at the end of the day, like, the Red Sox don't have that. Um, I know that's everyone's favorite narrative in line, <laughs> but... I, what the Braves are doing is absolutely insane. What Ronald Acuna has done is I, I, he got a lot of praise in the moment when he hit the 70, 40 mark and it's deservedly so, but I don't think it was accurate and, you know, just how amazing he is and what kind of season he had. 
it's insane to me that people are still having the debate of whether Mookie Betts is a fair contender for the NL MVP because I think Ronald Cunha, pun intended, ran away with it this year by swiping 70 bags and having 40 <laughs> home runs. I mean, that's the first player to do it. And they jokingly said, oh, when he gets to 71, he's still the first player to to do it just because <laughs> it, he is a man on his own at the top of that list. And to have him carrying your team and leading the way behind, you know, falling behind him is an incredible pitching staff. Like it's yeah. not even you go to the bats after him. It's the pitching staff, which I think is the next most dangerous thing on that team. And it, the world series is for them to lose. I think at this point, it, the Orioles are very entertaining. I love Adley Rushman. He's an incredible character. He's everything that I want Kyle Teal to eventually end up being for the mm-hmm. Red Sox. Uh, but they're a young team. I think they're going to run into the Astros and they're going to learn real quick. Uh, the playoffs are a whole different animal than winning a couple series during the, the regular season. Um, so it, the AL is going to be a whole lot more interesting than NL. I think the NL is already figured out. Yeah, I mean, I know around the office, the Orioles are the, the fan favorite we saw yeah. on social media from Gresham Fourier. So I think maybe the sentimental team might be the Orioles. But uh, sticking in the American League, uh, we're only minutes away from getting the LDS started. Obviously, this is the second year that they've changed the format. It's now a best of three. In the wild card round, uh, before we get to the DS, so we've got Rangers and Rays, and then we've got Blue Jays and Twins. So just give me a brief synopsis on those two series right there. Obviously, Texas dealing with a lot of injuries. Tampa, who started off ridiculously hot, they started to slow down. Then you have the Blue Jays, who have a ton of talent. They struggled a little bit in terms of consistency. And then the Twins are just kind of like, they're just kind of there. So just give me your... The twins are the Twins, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, that's the real question is, is it going to be the year that the Twins kind of get out of their own way and win a playoff series? I mean, they, I believe they finally have gotten their playoff win uh, in that last series that they might have played in. Uh, but it, I I would just, if I'm not a gambling guy, if I were to place bets, it would not be on the Twins just because that's how history is. Uh, they're also dealing with a really, really impressive team in the fact that the Blue Jays, they can hit. They, they're not going to home run you to death. They lost out on uh, Bichette earlier in the season. So it's kind of like they lost that power, but they're still going to be able to get on base and be able to bring guys around. And that's what they've been efficient with this entire year. The pitching, it is what it is. They're a wild card team pitching. I I think if the Red Sox had is put in as much effort into revitalizing their pitching at the deadline, then they might be dealing with the wild card instead of the blue Jays. So they're not really a team that really impresses me either. So it's kind of, it's kind of who's worse between the blue Jays and the twins here and who's going to end up moving on. Uh, I guess I got to go with the birds. I I'm an AL East diehard. So I have to go with the birds there. And it just kind of makes it seem a little bit better in the AL East that if you have teams moving on, it's kind of like, well, yeah, the Red Sox got beat up and pounded around by playoff contending teams. Uh, You look towards the other side of the AL with the Rangers and the Rays, and I think this is going to be the fun series, the way things are going to boil down. I mean, Corey Seager, what he's doing is unbelievable right now. He's up there in the AL MVP talks and, it's a matter of can he get the rest of his team to rally behind what he's doing in order to make it deep into the playoffs in, I don't know when you're dealing with Kevin cash on the other side of that, that field, it's, it's tough. I know that everyone likes to rail against them for what he did in the playoffs. 
and the fact that the Rays have never really kind of sealed the deal. But the fact of the matter is the Rays know how to get to a World Series and they know how to handle their pitching in order to get there. Can they win it? Who knows? But they know how to get to that that final spot. So I'm going to I think I'm going to have to go again with the AL East. It's the homer and moral victory. Get some moral victories out there for us in Boston, I guess, (laughs) with the Rays and the Blue Jays. That's a good way to look at it. How about on the other side for the National League? We know that it's the Phillies, the Diamondbacks, and the Marlins in the wild card. That was a crazy ending in the National League at the end of the regular season. And then you have the Brewers as well in the wild card round. So give me uh, really quickly in the National League, is there maybe one of those wild card teams uh, that – you think could make a deep run kind of similar to what the Phillies did last year? I mean, if, if any team's going to do it, it is the Phillies. They, they you've got Bryce Harper, you've got Brandon Marsh, you've got some in, incredible pitching. You got some short bombs still ready to let drop. Uh, so it, it'd be dumb not to pick the Phillies, but I am a jazz Chisholm fan. And I mean, he's not going to be the guy to push an entire team there. You're going to need a Herculean effort to get past the the Phillies uh, in a collective way, but to see Jazz Chisholm kind of go on and be a young guy, much like the Orioles, and kind of bring a little fun into the playoffs, that'd be it'd be good to see. But at the end of the day, it's it's a results business, and the Phillies know how to get results. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and say, expect the Phillies to be the ones moving on out of that Marlins matchup. Uh, and then the D-backs Brewers is probably going to be the most fair, I think, matchup within this first round. Uh, it really could go either way. I, I think I gotta go with D backs. I gotta you're go. Going, you're going. You're going with the Cinderella the team. You're going with the Cinderella I mean, team. You have to have at least one. I, I think in baseball, more often than not, you do get a little bit of Cinderella magic, uh, but things do have to pan out correctly. Like you actually have to be a competitor. You actually have to have the intangibles to get you there. And I think the D backs are a little bit more sure of a team than the Brewers. Brewers are. I think the Brewers had a little bit more questions. They they, they sealed up the deal earlier than the D-backs, but I really think that they benefited from a really weak NL Central. Whereas, like I said, the D-backs were playing an incredibly tough division in the NL West, and I think that's going to help them out coming down the stretch here, as far as maturity wise and how to expect how to play big game. Yeah, uh, some, big ball games. Something about something about that central division, man, makes you know twins and I, brewers. And God love, you know, Joey Votto and Rich Hill and all the guys that kind of meander <laughs> around in the NLS. But I feel like that's either where careers start and careers die. So you don't really get all the top tier talent, uh, which is unfortunate. But I, you got to have the central. They well, that's what they're there for. You at least want to make the playoffs. You can go to the central. You know that will give you your best chance. Um, before we wrap up this segment. I got to ask it world series prediction. I know you on your social media account and through WEI are rooting for the Orioles, but why don't you give us your final world series prediction before our first playoff game begins in about 15 minutes from when we're recording. I listen, I don't want to steer the the good listeners here wrong. So I, I gotta go with the Braves. It's the most logical decision. It's the most sure decision. I, like I, like you said, I love the birds. The birds are are my favorite. I love the Orioles. I like what they've been able to do this year for the Baltimore fan base. They've been able to have a whole lot of fun after six something years of just miserable baseball. So it'd be great to see them go to the World Series and square up against the Braves. But I really think any team that goes against the Braves is they're going to have their skulls beaten and they they are a wagon of a team. 
Do you have an AL team that the Braves are going to beat in that World Series? Oh, Orioles. Orioles. Oh, I, all right. We'll get there. Okay. Uh, I think it'll, we'll have a Orioles will have a nice ALCS against the Astros. They'll be able to scoot by. They'll be feeling good about themselves, maybe get into the ALCS. And, you know, I guess if we're going to do a full prediction here, uh, <laughs> we're not asking for it, but I if guess you it's want to, be, go I, for it. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess it's going to be an AL East ALCS. It's going to be Rays against Orioles. And then Ooh, okay. I guess Orioles in the World Series getting getting let down. I hate to do that to Baltimore, mm-hmm. but that's that's how I feel like things are going to shake out. Hey, they've, they've already got 100 wins. They were feeling good, especially when you saw them clinch it over the Sox. So that's a win for Baltimore and themselves. Uh, Coop, thanks again for uh, doing this segment. Stay right there because we got to get deep into the local part. We'll bring you back on to review the Red Sox and the tumultuous season that they had. So we'll see if your prediction comes true. Special thanks again to the one and only Cooper Leonard. Stay tuned during this episode. We're going to have him back on during our Let's Get Local segment to talk about the Red Sox but we shift from baseball to football as we are now a quarter of the way through the NFL season it still feels like a quarter even though it's uh, 18 weeks and 17 games I don't care we're still calling it a quarter through and uh, I mentioned last week uh, through the first three weeks of the season how teams have really shaped up I don't want to say like nothing has changed but I don't think anything significant to me is going to change uh, until maybe the next four weeks or so. So obviously things can change in the instant, uh, at least mindset wise, but I don't see anything drastic changing, uh, at least from my perspective. I didn't get a full perspective on every single team, but I'll try every week to do as much as I can for every single team. So let's look at all the matchups from week four. And we start on Thursday uh, with the Lions and the Packers. Uh, just getting the final scores list I have up. 34-20, to 20, the Lions win it. Uh, really what I thought from that matchup was that Detroit showed that they are ready and the Packers showed that they were not because it was a 27-3 to 3 lead at halftime. Now, the fact that it was 34-28, does it concern me? Yeah, a little bit for Detroit, but I ultimately thought they were going to win that game regardless and What I paid attention to most and talking to a couple of buddies of mine is the running back situation for Detroit. I think it's very, very interesting because if you remember in the draft this past year at number 12, the Lions took Jameer Gibbs out of Alabama and everyone had the idea of he's going to be the guy leaning forward. But Detroit also signed David Montgomery. And what Montgomery did was basically run it down Green Bay's throats. He rushed 32 times for 121 yards, and he scored three touchdowns. So that's a situation really to monitor. If this is sort of like a quarterback situation of have the young guy sit out for a year, similar to what Patrick Mahomes did, sit out for a year, watch Alex Smith uh, lead his team to the playoffs, and then he comes in the next year and just takes over. I don't know if that's the case, but I know if I'm Jameer Gibbs and I got all of this hype, I would be a little upset that Montgomery gave 32 rushes in that game. Uh, not to say it's a huge situation for Detroit and Dan Campbell, but it's something just to monitor because if they can get Jameer Gibbs going then, if they maybe 
play the hot hand in terms of running backs, then I would say look out for the offense for the Detroit Lions because they already look good, but they can look even better if those two get hot running. On the other side, though, for Green Bay, the situation obviously is surrounding Jordan Love, but with him taking over as the new guy for Green Bay, at least in his first year, he needs help. He needs a lot of help. Defensively, he did not get it this past Thursday. Overall, will he get it? Maybe. This can be a 500 team. But the big balance is in the running game. Obviously, the running game hurts when you have Aaron Jones, who had been out for a couple of weeks or so. He came back. He was limited. And A.J. Dillon did not do anything on the ground. They only got 27 yards rushing, did the Packers. So if Jordan Love doesn't have that kind of running running attack that is balanced, then the Packers are in trouble. And they will be heading to Vegas on Monday night where hopefully maybe they can right the ship. I mean, we'll talk about Vegas a little in a little bit, but um, for Vegas, uh, for the Packers, excuse me, this is just going to kind of be where they are. They're going to be right around that 500 mark. Jordan Love's going to have some good games. He's going to have some not go good games. This clearly was one of them because he had, he did not look well in that first half. Um, so, that was the Thursday matchup. How about the Sunday slate of games? Obviously, the one in the morning was the Falcons and the Jags over in London, England, which, by the way, it is very odd that the Jags are spending two weeks in London. You know, I, I don't know what Roger Goodell and the NFL has sending Jacksonville over to Lung, London, whether they're good or not. They're always the first one off the list. It's always like, I need a volunteer and... You know, Jacksonville continues to raise their hands so many times that when they don't raise their hands, they're just like, all right, Jacksonville, go. Um, <laughs> so the fact they're spending two weeks in London is, is a little interesting. But regardless, they destroy the Falcons 23-7. to They get a nice pick six from Darius Williams. They sack uh, Desmond Ritter four times. I think the defense for Jacksonville is very underrated. And obviously the offense for Jacksonville needs a little bit of work. Trevor Lawrence... Did not look good last week, but he's finding that connection with Calvin Ridley. He's obviously got ETN as a running back, but I look more so at how underrated uh, the defense was, and it's could be just because they're playing the Falcons and that they don't have a passing game, and Bijan Robinson can't run every single time. Um, I mean, they held the Chiefs a couple of weeks ago to 17 points. Just keep that in mind. The Chiefs, who are one of the best offenses in football, only 17 points. And um this this was good. This was really, really good for the Falcons. For for Jacksonville, I think another big test is gonna be Buffalo. I would love to see how uh Jacksonville how they're stacking against these really good teams. With the Chiefs, they held their own. With the Bills, I mean, again, if they can keep it close, then I think they have a really good shot of meeting the expectations that everyone thought. Because everyone thought, oh, it's a really weak AFC South. They should win that division because they did last year. Um, that's sort of what I see with uh, Jacksonville. And time will only tell if uh, Jacksonville can really get back into things. Um, the big game, though, from the weekend was the AFC showdown, Bills and Dolphins. I mean, Buffalo absolutely routed Miami, routed them. 48 to 20. And now I know I said that there is a little bit of 
pessimism or everyone's pessimistic uh, in Buffalo. But now I think they've righted the ship. They have righted the ship. They look back on track. They're looking like themselves again. I mean, Josh Allen is back to where they are, or is back to where he should be. Five touchdowns on the day, four passing, which, by the way, three of them to Stephon Diggs, so that relationship looks okay. He had one rushing touchdown. He only had four incompletions and threw for 320 yards. Um, I think the Bills are back on track, and really, we can't start we can't start talking about them again in their Super Bowl chances until they get to the postseason because they're everyone you know including the one and only Nick Fitzy Stevens said the Dolphins were going to win the AFC East but the Bills are showing that it's still their division you know everyone you know almost everyone had good uh, off seasons you know the Jets obviously were going to be good with Aaron Rodgers um, the Dolphins are still the Dolphins. The Bills are still showing that it's their division. And not only do they have a great offense, but they've got one of the best defenses in football, fourth best in yards allowed per game, second in uh, opponent points per game. The big issue, though, is in that secondary. Once again, Tredavious White out for the year. This time it's a torn Achilles rather than a torn ACL. They're still waiting on Von Miller. I do still think that this is a, a defense that can sort of plug and play and really make things uh, very difficult. You know, the, the story is always going to come down to, uh, and the big picture for Buffalo is their running attack. Do they have a run game that they can rely on? And so far, uh, the tandem of uh, James Cook and a little bit of Damian Harris and even Latavius Murray. But shout out to Latavius Murray, uh, who's basically uh, a poor man's Adrian Peterson. He has got some staying power. Uh, in this league. So if the run game can be just as effective as the pass game and Josh Allen doesn't have to be the leading rusher every single week, then the Bills are going to once again make some noise. They're going to win the division. And then we'll talk about them again when we get to the playoffs. That's when the nitty gritty of analyzing them will come into effect. On the other side for Miami, I'm not too concerned. You know, they're still a relatively young team. Uh, this is only, you know, really for Tua. Um, for Tua, for Tua, he's still in the process of managing such a big offense. And so is Mike McDaniel as well. And their offense still put up 20 points, but it's just a better Bills team. This was more about what the Bills did than what the Dolphins didn't. So I'm not too concerned, Miami. They're definitely going to bounce back, especially when they're going to face the lowly New York Giants next week. So no issues there. I'm not concerned about Miami at all. Who I am concerned about are the Chicago Bears, because this was basically the toilet bowl. Who was going to be the worst team in football between the Bears and the Broncos? And it looked like it was going to be the Broncos, because they were down 28-7 to at one point. But what do you know? Sean Payton riding the ship and getting the Broncos the come-from-behind victory, 31-28. to And really for the Broncos, it was... I, I mentioned that the experiment... Last week, I mentioned the experiment with Sean Payton and Russell Wilson was blowing things up. Um, but really, when doing a deep dive, um, Russell Wilson was not the issue in uh, how the, the Broncos started and how they started 0-3. It was more so their defense. They could not stop anybody. I mean, they had the crazy Hail Mary um, that got them back. And they let the commanders get like 34 points, and they let up 70 to the Dolphins. 
Um, so it was more so the defense for the Broncos that I had big issues with. Sean Payton just needs to focus on that because I do think Russell Wilson has turned a corner uh, offensively, especially when they're leading this kind of comeback against the Bears. Uh, speaking of, there's so much chaos right now in Chicago. I think they have to be the most dysfunctional organization right now in football. I mean, Justin Fields finally was looking like the guy everyone expected him to be. And then he just makes a costly mistake. He just looks pedestrian, you know, when he's flushed out of the pocket. You know, he's making wild throws. Uh, he's not running as effective as we thought he was uh, in these crucial moments. Yeah, he can have some good stats. But when it comes down to, like, nitty-gritty stuff, he just looks, like, panicked. He still looks confused uh, when he's in the pocket, when he's forced out of the pocket. I mean, I don't think Matt Eberflus is going to make it as the head coach for the entire season. I think he's going to be the first one to to lose his job. So be wary of that. And you better hope and pray that this Thursday night that the Bears can at least look modestly relevant against the Commanders. You hope that they can do that. Uh, can they? I don't know. But if I had to make a bet for who's going to get that number one pick in this year's draft, I would probably put the Bears right there in that conversation. And oh, by the way, they had that number one pick and could have taken Bryce Young, but they put all their eggs into Justin Fields' basket. Um, and they they have to ride it for the entire year. The entire year. They chose Justin Fields. They got to ride with Justin Fields. Matt Eberflus, though, not feeling too good about his job security right now. Uh, moving on, though, let's talk about the Ravens, though. Everyone's kind of sleeping on the Baltimore Ravens right now at 3-1. and one. They demolish... Uh, Deshaun Watson's less Cleveland Browns 28 to three. I mean, this is a classic. It was kind of like a reminder game for me for Baltimore because Lamar Jackson just did what Lamar Jackson did only 186 yards passing, but he did have two big strikes to Mark Andrews and he had 27 yards on the ground. And really the Ravens didn't have to do much on offense. You know, I'm not really looking at this and saying, Oh, the Ravens are back but it was sort of a reminder of how good they can be. They just had a lot of injuries to deal with, as I mentioned last week. Basically, their entire running back room was hurt. Um, Odell Beckham Jr. was missing. They had some big injuries in the secondary and along their defense. So injuries were going to get in the way. Um, but this was a reminder to the league of how good Baltimore can be. And then just for the Browns, I mean... When you don't have Nick Chubb and you don't have experience at quarterback, when you have a, a fifth year or a, sorry, a fifth round pick in Dorian Thompson Robinson making his NFL debut and you have to make him throw 36 times because you don't have Nick Chubb and you don't have an effective run game, that's a bad combo. Bad combo at all. So Cleveland, you know, luckily they get the bye week this week. They can reset and Dorian Thompson, if he has to start again, will get some more time. And if not, they'll at least have more experience at the quarterback, you know. Will they be, you know, at least they'll at least get an upgrade into Sean Watson, but I'm not expecting a, a big turnaround for them. Uh, but speaking of big turnarounds, that's what the Bengals are hoping for right now because they are in a world of trouble. They're in a world of trouble. 27 to 3. They lose to the Titans of all team. They're now at one and three. I mean, we've seen you heard in the post game with Jamar Chase. He says he's always open. There is a lot of frustration going on, and there's really two things that I've looked at with the Spangles. Number one, 
the run defense. They've got the second worst run defense in the league. They're averaging, their defense is averaging 157 yards allowed from a rushing attack per game, especially when you have a big running team like the Ravens. You had Nick Chubb. Now you have Derrick Henry running all over them. I mean, this defense needs to learn to stop the run because everyone, they are not scared at all. They are no, no running back is scared of that defensive front uh, making any kind of stops. They're a good pass defense, but the run defense really needs to work. That's number one. Number two for the Bengals, and you saw it, Joe Burrow is extremely limited with that calf injury right now. The Bengals need him at 100%. You saw it on Monday night against the Rams, how sort of gimpy he was. He couldn't really move out of the pocket. And then you obviously saw it against Tennessee. He was limited there as well. Because when Joe Burrow is 100%, he's one of the best quarterbacks out there. But the fact that he is that limited, you even heard Jamar Chase. I mentioned it last week. Chase said himself, I would love to see Burrow sit out a game. And I think what Cincy is trying to do is they're trying to get to that bye week. I think they're trying, Joe Burrow is trying to get to the bye week and just stay afloat and hope that things do not get worse. That's really what I think uh, is going down for Cincinnati. And just pulling up their schedule really quick, obviously next week they have to go to Arizona and then they face Seattle. You better hope and pray that Joe Burrow can win Arizona. This may be as close to a must win as possible because the way Seattle looked on Monday night, which we'll get into in a little bit, I would pick Seattle in that game if Joe Burrow is not 100%. So they have to win this game in Arizona because then they get to the bye week at week seven and you'd have to think Joe Burrow is going to be off his feet and he should be definitely much, he should look better physically than what he has looked like in the past couple of weeks. So that's what I see with Cincy is that it's not over. It's not over yet for the Bengals, but they need Burrow back at 100%. Uh, because without that, they're not going to have a chance to get back to the Super Bowl uh, like they did two years ago where they lost to the Rams. Who we get into next, the Rams finding some new life as they win in overtime against the Colts. And I like how the Rams are growing offensively they did lose a 23 to nothing lead to the Colts of all teams. And everyone still wants to get on the hype of Anthony Richardson. I'm still not buying it. Okay. Um, I do like how the offense is growing, how Matthew Stafford is finding the connections to Tutu Atwell and Puka Nakua. Um, and then they're eventually going to get Cooper cup back uh, at some point in the year. Okay. So the passing game is going to be great. And similar to the Ravens, though, it's the running game. How effective can Kyron Williams be? Um, you also got to remember, Stafford has a hip contusion. So, you know, he's going to be limited, all right? The run game just needs to balance him out because that's that's really what got them to a Super Bowl. They had a great passing game, and they had some semblance of a running attack, if you remember, in that with that Super Bowl team. So... You know, defense, run game, we'll see how that does uh, for the Rams as they, next up, will have to go to Philly. So it's, it's it, I don't think it's going to be a pretty game, uh, at least on LA's side of things. Uh, moving on, though, I got to talk about one of my favorite teams who I'm rooting for, and that's Tampa. 
because I think it's time to take Tampa and Baker Mayfield seriously. Yes, it was the Saints um, who have struggled. They've been on the struggle bus all year, but it was a dominant 26 to nine. And I'm just still riding the praises of Baker Mayfield. He's got the eighth best passer rating in football. This guy, when you give him time to learn an offense and you give him weapons, he's a good quarterback. I'm not making him a top 10 quarterback, but he's a serviceable quarterback. And when you look at how who he's had to replace, a guy named uh, Tom Brady, who's made the number 12 famous and is on his way to the Hall of Fame, the fact that they've seamlessly went from him to Baker and Baker has performed this well, I'm riding the praises of the Bucks, and I am going to call it right here, right now. I know it's only, we just finished week four, but this is the team who's going to win the NFC South. I really do think that, because let's face it, the Saints, what they did with a banged up Derek Carr, which I, I still think with Carr is providing stability, New Orleans relied too hard on Alvin Kamara to try and fix that run game, because right now their leading rusher is Taysom Hill. And he's a gadget player with 101 yards. But they tried to get Kamara involved so much. He had 13 catches and 11 rushes. So I don't buy the Saints. I don't buy the Falcons. I don't buy the Panthers. The Bucs are going to be the team to win this division. And they've got a nice, uh, easy schedule going on right now. Uh, they're heading into the bye week. Um, you know, you almost kind of hope <laughs> if you're a Bucks fan that they could keep playing. So, cause I'd be, the team is hot when they're hot. You don't want them to stop. Um, so, you know, I'm still riding the praises of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, not saying they're going to challenge a team like the Eagles, uh, who are still undefeated, who we'll get to next, but I still like them as a team to win this division. Speaking of the Eagles though, they're probably one of the big topics as they just barely hang on and uh, win over the Commanders 34-31 to 31 in overtime, of all things. Overtime. You got to remember, Washington last year gave the Eagles that very first loss uh, of the season, you know. And as I said last week about Philly, you know, yes, they are 4-0, but they're not a dominant 4-0 like we saw last year. I mean, we saw Jalen Hurts, uh, Miles Sanders, A.J. Brown, Devontae Smith. We saw that whole offense basically run over teams, and the defense was able to be serviceable. But the fact is, they're not a dominant team right now. I mean, yes, they have the second-best rush defense, but they're just not dominant. I mean, yes, are they still a contender? Sure. But just through these first four games, I don't know. Some It got me a little bit down. It's like basically going from a an A-plus to an A or an A-minus or whatever. That It's that kind of downgrade. You know, yes, they're still a good team, but you can't be certain on them like you were a year ago just because they're not dominant and really we're not going to get any answers next week when they play the Rams um, because they're going to roll over in that game and they should win that game the question would be if they lose that game that's when we got to start talking about them once again um, but a team that did well last year similar to the Eagles were the Vikings but they continue to struggle even in victory yes they get the win over the Panthers 21 to 13 but it's the Panthers remember it's the Carolina Panthers who have a rookie quarterback and basically a whole new system in year one because let's face it for minnesota the big concern is kirk cousins okay even in a win he still did not perform well 12 of 19 139 yards two tds two picks and a qbr of 37.3 okay 
37.3. And that's the guy who's going to carry the Vikings to the postseason. This is why everyone picked the Lions, because you can't trust Kirk Cousins on a consistent basis. He was bailed out by Alexander Madison, who had 95 rush yards. Justin Jefferson, the best receiver in football. Two more touchdown catches for him. But it's all reliant on Kirk Cousins. You cannot believe in this guy. I When you start to believe in him, he just lowers your expectations. I mean, come on. This was a Vikings team that lost to the Giants in the postseason. And look where the Giants are right now. So I'm still not sold on the Vikings. I'm still not sold. They can get back to 500. They can get to 3-3. Three and three, But I don't buy it. I just don't buy it. Okay? And they've got to play the Chiefs next week. So if they win this game, I'll give them a nice little golf clap if they beat Kansas City. But I don't expect it. I don't expect it at all. What I also didn't expect to try and segue into this were the Texans. I still love their youthful exuberance as they win 30-6 to over the Steelers. I mean, how many people predicted the Texans to go 2-2 two and two in their first four games? Okay? I, I don't expect them to sort of, uh, you know, five for a postseason spot, but they're definitely not going to be in the basement of the NFL. Not at all. Why? Because of C.J. Stroud. I said last week that they made the right pick in getting him, and I still think so. He's my pick right now early on for Offensive Rookie of the Year. So far, fourth in pass yards, ninth in passer rating, and he's only one of three quarterbacks uh, with more than one start to have zero interceptions, okay? So he's already got ball security out of the way. He was 16 of 30 for 306 and two touchdowns. So I think C.J. Stroud has a great career ahead of him, and I like the Texans' direction uh, in the future. Now, to be fair for Pittsburgh, they did lose Kenny Pickett, but I would have thought that defense would have been so much better against a Texans team like this. I, I would have thought better, especially T.J. Watt having the motivation of his brother J.J. getting inducted into their ring of honor. I would have thought that had been motivation, but that's why you can't really trust Pittsburgh right now and why they're going to be a wild card contender, but not a playoff team. That That's why. Uh, the four o'clock slate of games, though, I thought were very, very interesting. Um, we'll get into the Pats side of the 38-3 win by the Cowboys, but for the Cowboys... Um, you know, they just showed how dominant that defense really can be and how much of a disruptor Micah Parsons can be, even with a bad ankle injury. Um, the offense still has some questions for me. Uh, Dak Prescott moving the ball down the field. Because, I mean, it, it took two defensive scores for the Cowboys to get this uh, on a route. Um, and then they just took advantage of a banged-up secondary by the Patriots. So I would say right now they're still among maybe the best four teams I'd say in football, but I still wouldn't be, you know, predicting them to go to a Super Bowl. That's at least where I stand with the Cowboys. And the real test will be when they play the 49ers uh, this Sunday. Uh, but we'll get into the Niners in a little bit. Let's talk Raiders and Chargers, though. Chargers get the 24-17 win, but I'm still just not sold on them. I mean, if you only put up, um, I mean, yes, Khalil Mack had six sacks in the game, but the fact is, you only had a touchdown win over Aiden O'Connell, who was starting for Jimmy G. I'm not sold. I'm sorry. I'm just not sold. And Justin Herbert, I mean, again, this is going to be a team where 
you have to score 35 because your defense can't stop anybody. That's just how Chargers teams are in the past. I'm still not sold on L.A., okay? They get the bye week, so I can't tell you any more than that uh, for that for the Chargers. But I'm just telling you that I'm not sold. I'm not sold at all. Um, As I said, 49ers, let's get into them because they, to me, are the favorites in the NFC. And I understand it was the Cardinals, a team that is basically tanking, uh, uh, crapping for Caleb, as we like to call it, or sucking for Shadur. You know, um, it was 35-16. But let's just look at how good that team is. Brock Purdy has yet to lose a regular season game. He's 9-0 and in his regular season starts. How about Christian McCaffrey, who just passed Jerry Rice for the most consecutive games in 49er history with a touchdown? And not only did he have one in that game, he had four, four touchdowns, three on the ground, one in the air. Right now, McCaffrey is my MVP. And I'm someone who never, who always looks outside of the quarterbacks for MVP. So I, if he continues this sort of pace, Christian McCaffrey is going to be that guy for me. The Niners have it all. They have a tremendous offense and what the scheme that Kyle Shanahan has, all the weapons they have with Kittle and Debo and Ayuk and McCaffrey. And of course, defensively, they're always going to be great with if uh, Bosa on that line with Nick Bosa on the defensive line. So the Niners, unless something drastic changes, they will be my favorites to make the Super Bowl in the NFC. Winning it, though, let's talk later in the season, though, about that. Because one of the teams they could face is Kansas City, who just barely hang it, hung on, excuse me, to beat the New York Jets on Sunday Night Football 23-20. to Obviously, everyone was talking about, oh, the Chiefs are now 2-0 when Swifty's in the box. When, he, when she's in the luxury box. But let's face it, the Chiefs did not have a good game. And I should I should be concerned that it's the Jets. Um, I should be concerned that it's the New York Jets that they just won on. But let's face it. I mean, the Chiefs, they, all they care about is getting to the postseason. Really, they do. And um, everyone wants to talk about sort of the holding call, um, you know, holding on Sauce Gardner. You know, I haven't really gotten to look at it too deep, but at least from first perspective, I would have said that's not holding at all. That's not holding at all. And honestly, I, I you know, I clowned the Jets and Zach Wilson uh, last week. Um, but I mean, I do think that Wilson has matured. You know, you remember at the end of uh, before he got benched, he was um, I think it was the Patriots loss. He was asked, oh, um, do you feel like you let your offense down? He said no. But then you see him in this game on the sideline saying, I just cost us the game. In the post game, he's saying, I just cost us the game. And you can see that sort of the players, they have his back in terms of respect. Um, so, I mean, I, I think he might have kept his job at least for next for the next couple of weeks. Because if this team looked, you know, lowly um, and he didn't have the touchdown and the Jets didn't tie it at some point, then I would have said, you know, for next week when they go to the Broncos, get someone else in there. But the fact that Wilson held in there and went toe-to-toe with Patrick Mahomes, I have much more respect. Is he still, you know, do I still think he's the long-term answer for the Jets? Absolutely not. I still don't think he's a serviceable quarterback in the NFL. But I do give him the props and respect for going toe-to-toe with the Chiefs. Uh, But then to wrap up week four, it was the Giants and the Seahawks and my goodness, I watched that game from start to finish, and considering where the Giants were last year to where they are now, 
losing 24 to three. It's, it's kind of sad. And I really feel bad for Daniel Jones because let's face it. He's got maybe the worst offensive line in football. The fact that the Seahawks, yes, the Seahawks who had went from the Legion of boom to sort of a middling basement sort of defense. They had 11 sacks against Daniel Jones and you could just see the frustration there. So I, I don't really put it on Daniel Jones. I know he had some really bad interceptions, including a pick six. I don't put it all on Daniel Jones. I look at more of the offensive line and then just some really boneheaded mistakes uh, in terms of penalties, not only from the special teams, uh, but on the defensive side as well. You saw them get a little chippy with Seattle. Um, You know, I I feel bad for the Giants because now they're going to go to one and four. They're probably going to lose in Miami to the Dolphins. Um, I I don't know what to say. I, I don't know what to say. It's just a one giant fall from grace. Seattle, though, I said, is this going to be, uh, was last year a, a fluky year, or is this sustained power? And I think Geno Smith, the best thing that could have happened to him was be back, be a backup in Pete Carroll's system because Pete Carroll is a Hall of Fame coach. He's on his way to the Hall of Fame for sure. And the fact that he got to learn behind Russell Wilson and uh, not have a ton of expectations after the trade uh, with the Broncos. Because remember, everyone thought, oh, Drew Locke got traded to Seattle. He's going to be their quarterback. Well, now Geno Smith is the guy. He he went into camp, very few expectations on him to actually become the starter. He becomes the starter. They have a good year, and now he's got the confidence. So, you know, it's a real feel-good story for Geno and Seattle. They definitely won that trade. And, you know, they get to have a nice little bye week at three and one, and they can say, hey, look at us over here. Start taking us seriously. So that's really where everything stands, at least for me in the NFL for week four. Week five should be a completely different story uh, for some of these teams. They can either turn things around or not, but. We'll just see what happens when we get to next week, which starts this Thursday when the Bears play the Commanders. Uh, But up next, we had a big recap last week in the NFL and the MLB, so we never really had time for any uh, subtopics. We return with our segment that circles all the big topics in sports that we didn't get to in these first two segments, and that is Quick Hits. Now we're going to get into our quick hit segment, which is all the segments and topics in sports that we didn't get to in our first two. So obviously the big thing, the big news story outside of the NFL and the MLB postseason is Damian Lillard, because finally, which what felt like forever, felt like it went on longer than the writer's strike. Damian Lillard gets traded from the Blazers, but it's not to his preferred choice of the Miami Heat. He's heading to the Milwaukee Bucks. So the trade details. The Bucks get Damian Lillard. The Blazers get a bunch of draft picks and DeAndre Ayton. Also Drew Holiday, who got traded later on. The Phoenix Suns get Grayson Allen, Nasir Little, and Yusuf Nurkic. So I think big winner in this one. I mean, it's hard to say between the Bucks and the Suns um, because the Bucks now have maybe 
the best tandem in uh, Giannis and Damian Lillard. But the Suns get some really good depth out of it. Remember, this was a team that they lost, they lost all their depth in the Kevin Durant and the Bradley Beal trades. Now they're getting some really good depth back. You got a serviceable big man who's basically going to go in there, do his job in Yusuf Nurkic, um, along with Kevin Durant, Bradley Beal, Devin Booker. Now they've got bench options and a scrappy Grayson Allen and a really good Nasir Little. Uh, the Blazers get their center of the future, possibly DeAndre Ayton. Um, they also get another big man who we'll talk about uh, later in Let's Get Local. Um, the Bucks, though, I, I mean, I, I initially, when the trade broke on last Tuesday, um, I would have said, oh, then uh, Milwaukee, or no, it was Wednesday, excuse me. Um, I, I initially said when the trade was made, oh, the Bucks are now the best team in the East by far. Now, kind of thinking about it, this was before the Celtics got Drew Holiday from the Blazers. I'm not, I'm not sold. I mean, I think our our guys on the WEI producer show, Ryan Garvin, Billy Lanny, they they talked me into it. I'm not really sold on it because they lost their best perimeter defender in Drew Holiday. They've got a banged up Chris Middleton, who's you know kind of off and on from injuries, and all their depth is basically gone. Basically, what their roster has is Dame time. They've got Middleton, Giannis. They have both the Lopez twins. They have, uh, just trying to remember off the top of my head, Jay Crowder, Goran Drogic. Um, they don't, their depth is not as good now. You know, yes, they still have Pike Connaughton. I forgot about him, but I don't know if they're still the best team. You know, I, I can't lock them down for a finals win. I'm not, I'm not quite sold because, you know, when you go from Holiday to Lillard, you take a step down defensively. Um, but again, this is just the Bucks trying to keep their window open while they have Giannis Antetokounmpo uh, as a championship window because he said he's still not signing a deal and he's going to bring it up next year. So it's not certain that he's going to stay in Milwaukee. So, you know, I'll be interested to see how that dynamic works because obviously Dame is a very ball-heavy dominant player, but so is Giannis, you know. Uh, is Dame going to be the guy who just is a plug and play for Drew Holiday? Does his defense get any better? I don't know. That'll be that'll be a wait wait to see. But he does look, you know, he looks interested at least in teaming up with Giannis and uh, playing for the Bucks. Unlike you know any of the other teams that he mentioned. And I'll just say it right here: I was wrong. I thought this was going to end with Lillard going to the Miami Heat, but the Blazers just they didn't like the Heat's asking price, so. That's just the way it is. That was the way it is. And I will own up to the fact that I was wrong with how this thing ended. Um, but I want to get into something which I think I'm going to be right about. And that's James Harden sticking with the NBA. Uh, Harden sticks to his word. He's not at Sixers Media Day and he's not at training camp. But he did say he is going to show up later on. But let's just face it. He still wants a trade and neither side is going to win because Harden doesn't have leverage. He still doesn't have leverage for a trade because again, he's this great talent, but he disappears when it matters most. He's not, he doesn't have the trade appeal, um, at least to the Clippers that the Sixers think that they have and whatever asking price, whatever they get back in this hardened deal, you lose, uh, the second best player, arguably on the Sixers and Joel Embiid just gets that more unhappy because he wanted a, an all-star teammate. He wanted Ben Simmons. He's gone. He wanted uh, Jimmy Butler. He's gone. He wanted James Harden. He's going to be gone. 
And, you know, not to say like this is uh, Embiid's way or the highway or whatever, but he's going to get mad that another superstar has left him. And now he's probably going to be the next one who uh, requests a trade to the Sixers, which sends Philly back into the trust the process uh, side of things. So I don't think this works well for anybody. And I have a feeling this road is going to head to the Sixers heading to the basement. They're going to be back in tank mode uh, sooner rather than later. Um, Back to football, though, I want to look around the college football landscape because I really hadn't talked about that uh, since the season got underway. Just a couple of games um, from last week that I wanted to focus on. Obviously, the big story has been Colorado, the fact that Deion Sanders won his first three games as head coach, but then he got his doors blown off when they played Oregon and then USC. Um, I I think the lust is gone a little bit because I don't think anyone expected – Colorado to have you know a really good year they were thinking oh maybe this is another one and nine team but the fact that they went three and oh just like that you know it got people excited um I would still call it a successful year because to go from one win to three wins is still pretty good and uh Dion is just a really good persuader so that's what I see with Colorado so the team they lost to USC Caleb Williams is the real deal. He's going to be the number one pick unless he has a serious injury. And right now, he's uh, the Heisman favorite. He's the Heisman favorite right now. But also in the Pac-12, you've got Oregon, who you want to take as a threat. But in their uh, school's history, they always find a way to lose a game. And when they get to the big game, they can never you know, take down the SEC or the Big Ten or Big 12 team that they stand in front of so you know i i want to say it's going to be usc or oregon but i can't guarantee it uh for notre dame what sam hartman did should make him a heisman finalist you've got ole miss and lsu going in a shootout my goodness i mean there's just so much chaos right now in college football that right now i can't pick a favorite i really just cannot pick a favorite right now um you know talk to me in the two weeks or so and uh i'll give you an idea of what goes on there. Uh, I want to switch to golf for a little bit because the Ryder Cup was, interestingly enough, a big topic considering not only what happened on the course, but off the course as well. First, you have Europe routing the USA um, with the tensions mounting. I mean, let's face it. When Europe was up six after day one, it was over. It was absolutely over. And when you have the best golfer in the world right now in John Rom making the shots that he he was i mean there was no turning back no turning back at all but off the course is really what i wanted to discuss and it was the after the end of day two when usa was kind of celebrating some things and it led to rory mcelroy a a video surfacing around of him absolutely screaming i think at an american caddy and to be honest that was the first time i had ever seen that much anger and that much rage in Rory McIlroy. You always see him on the course or either in press conferences where he's very, not not sort of relaxed, but he's never, he'll get disappointed, but he'll never be visibly angry or upset. That was the first time I'd ever seen him with that much emotion in him. And, you know, he's this soldier for the PGA or whatever, and he's sort of, he keeps things inside. That was the first time I had ever seen him basically let everything out in regards to his emotions. I don't know if we're going to see that again, but 
that's just what the Ryder Cup is. There's so much emotion in this USA versus Europe kind of thing. Um, but the last thing I wanted to talk about, at least in this segment, were the baseball legends who are now going to be leaving us uh, in terms of their playing careers. I mean, Miguel Cabrera, Adam Wainwright, Joey Votto, Terry Francona. Those are the four guys that I really wanted to circle in on. Miguel Cabrera did something that a player hadn't done in nearly 30 years, and that's hit the Triple Crown. And he's without a doubt going into the Hall of Fame, but it was just the age that caught up to him. Adam Wainwright, I mean, I think everyone remembers him closing out uh, the 2006 World Series for the Cardinals. And the fact that he was still going at 40 years old, still pitching. I mean, he was basically the ace of those World Series teams, uh, or at least in 2011, I should say, when that team won the wild card and then beat the Texas Rangers. Um, He was the ace of that team, and he was just a really good, serviceable pitcher. Joey Votto, I mean, why did he have to get ejected in his final game, possibly in his career, and with Cincinnati? I mean, that sucked, but... Again, a guy where age just caught up to him and injuries caught up to him, but was regarded as one of the top hitters in the National League. And since he had a a period in that time with him and Jay Bruce uh, and Brandon Phillips where they were contenders, but he was just a really good hitter and a really good power hitter. But of course, sentimentally, I got to go to my man Tito, Terry Francona, uh, ending his managerial career. Let's face it, this guy turned around to dumps of a franchise he brought the Red Sox two World Series titles after having none in 86 years then you have the Cleveland Guardians where after you know the scandal itself uh when he ended his time with the Red Sox I'm gonna look past that right now what he did for Cleveland to turn that franchise around get them to the World Series for the first time in maybe I want to say 50 years or so I mean this is without a doubt I think one of the top two managers in MLB history. I think he's up there. It's probably Tommy Lasorda and then him, I'd have to say. The fact that he turned things around, and he's just a likable guy. He's a very, very likable guy. So I'm going to miss T. I mean, I've already been missing Tito since he went from Boston to Cleveland uh, when he took on that new manager's job. Um, But without a doubt, Francona did more to help the MLB than he did to hurt it. So... All four of those guys are definitely going to be missed. So those are the topics we got into. I hope we covered them all that you all wanted to. But for all you Boston fans who wanted those topics out there, we're going to get into that right now after this when we get to Let's Get Local. This is our city. So now we're moving on to all of our Boston teams with our Let's Get Local segment. And before I talk about anything, I just want to say really quickly that this segment this week is going to be dedicated to Tim Wakefield. Um, If you don't know, Tim Wakefield tragically passing away on Sunday at 57 um, after a few days ago. uh, Before then, he was diagnosed with uh, brain cancer and... It's sad. It's really it. This one hurts a little bit. I mean, there there are very few athletes, at least in my in my lifetime, um, because I'm still fairly young 
Um, these are, this is one of the athletes I sort of grew up on, you know, maybe not in the 1990s when he was starting out with Pittsburgh, but I just remember, um, you know, he, he was the guy that made the knuckleball famous, you know, that, you know, on the, on the field, you know, I talked about this with Joe Weil, uh, during Red Sox review on Sunday after the Sox series finale, but he was just, he was revolutionary, um, with the knuckleball. I mean, how many guys do you really see throwing the knuckleball? Um, but not only that, but he was just a team player. He was literally, he was the ultimate teammate when in 2000, I mean, in the 2003 ALCS, when he gives up the home run to Aaron Boone, um, you know, he's, he's putting his head down and he takes full responsibility for it. Then in 2004 in the ALCS, when the team is getting blown out by the Yankees in game three, um, he says, you know, I will go in there. I will, you know, take the heat for it you know, giving up runs and stuff like that. He didn't care about that. Um, and he was in every role possible. He was a starter. He was a bullpen guy. He was a closer. You know, he was the ultimate team player. And um, when you get to the off-the-field stuff, it, he just had a, a heart of gold, an absolute heart of gold. I mean, he took everything out of his mind. Or He was a Roberto Clemente Award winner. Um, he did so much for the Jimmy Fund. Um and he was just all around a nice guy. I mean, I'll never forget an FOP front of the podcast, Hannah Moran, for my birthday last year, sent me a cameo video of Tim Wakefield shouting me out when I first got my job uh, at WEEI. And, you know, I've watched that multiple times um, since Sunday. So this segment, Let's Get Local, is uh, dedicated to the life and memory of Tim Wakefield. Uh, may you never be forgotten in the eyes of Red Sox Nation. Um, so that's sort of, I just wanted to get that out there so we can now get into our topics and, you know, sort of get on a lighter note. And that's the Celtics making a big trade, uh, just the day before media day. Now they're at training camp. They upgrade their point guard and they get Drew Holiday from Portland. Remember he was traded to Portland in the Damian Lillard deal. Now he's traded from Portland to Boston for a package of reigning six man of the year, Malcolm Rogdon the Time Lord, Robert Williams, and a couple of draft picks. Now, I will say, ultimately, I'll come on to the conclusion that I love this move. I love the move because this was a Celtics team in the offseason that lost a lot of defense. Obviously, you traded Marcus Smart, who's a DPOY, um, to Memphis as part of the deal to get Kristaps Porzingis, which is an upgrade, you would think. You also lost Grant Williams in free agency, because it was just basically a financial thing, plus in a role in Joe Missoula's offense. He just really didn't fit. So you lost a lot of defense and a lot of toughness in that. But now you get Drew Holiday, who ultimately I think would be an upgrade for Marcus Smart because he's more consistent offensively, you know, when you need sort of a big shot. Like, like we'll think about it like this. When Jason Tatum passed the ball, um, in that game against Philadelphia in the Eastern Conference semis. When he passed it off to Smart, or when Marcus Smart was running the offense, if you put Drew Holiday in that, do you expect him to make those plays? Because I do. I think they have a great backcourt setting up. I think the starting five now is incredible. With Derek White and Drew Holiday in the backcourt, basically, I think the best defensive backcourt in the NBA. Then you have Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, and Kristaps Porzingis, I think that's a great starting five. And now, you know, yes, you did lose a little bit of depth, but 
you move Al Horford from the starting lineup to probably the next man off the bench. Um, you keep the shooting of Sam Hauser. You're expecting Jordan Walsh to um, basically fill in for Grant Williams. And then you have Peyton Pritchard, who's going to be motivated to get some playing time. So I like that side of things. What I don't like is giving up Robert Williams because I was okay with giving up Malcolm Brogdon because, you know, you had the attempted trade of him going to the Clippers that obviously didn't sit well with him. So you ultimately knew that when that trade fell apart, that Brogdon wasn't going to have a very long future in Boston. Um, So you deal him away. I'm okay with that. It's Rob Williams that kind of makes me nervous since I don't really see Kristaps Porzingis as a rim protecting center. You know, I don't really see that from him. I see him more as a stretch five who can shoot the three, you know, a seven, two guy who can hit the three. I don't really see him as sort of a defense first rim protector like Robert Williams. And obviously the big knock on the time Lord was that he just continuously got hurt. Um, You know, you could say the same thing about Porzingis, but I think a defensive minded guy in Robert Williams was essential for this team. You know, maybe in the the long-term future, it, it's not going to be that big of a deal, but at least for the here and now, I didn't, I don't love losing his defense, but obviously the pros weigh out the con. So I ultimately say that this is a good move. Um, can I say that they're still the best team in the East? You know, I don't know. I, I have to see it play out on the court, but I love Drew Holiday with this roster and with this Celtics team. Um, and, you know, there's I I really want to see them in the preseason. I just want to see them all on the court together to see how they do. Um, so, Boston fans, enjoy your positivity because we're about to get very, very negative right now uh, before I welcome Cooper Leonard back to talk about the Red Sox. We have to talk about the Patriots and how bad they looked in their 38-3 to loss to the Dallas Cowboys, which was statistically the worst loss in the Bill Belichick era. For the Patriots. I mean, let's just put the game aside for one second. It's hard not to see the big picture rather than just you ran into a really good Cowboys team. I mean, the offensive line that this was that was structured to go against Micah Parsons was just a recipe for disaster. And then the defense losing basically its best two defenders when Christian Gonzalez, uh, dislocated his shoulder and now apparently has a torn labrum. And then you have Matthew Judon who now has a torn biceps tendon and is in all likelihood about to miss the season. Let's just put it like this. Everything that Bill Belichick constructed blew up in his face. Um, The fact that he didn't give full support for multiple years to Mac Jones, the fact that he disregarded the offensive line and decided just to plug and play the fact that, He didn't really look at talent when he looked towards uh, the offense and he didn't look for speed uh, or athleticism in the uh, defense. I mean, part of it, yes, is the lack of secondary help that they have um, considering that Jonathan Jones and Marcus Jones was inactive for that game. Now you lose your third cornerback in Gonzalez. So you had to put miles Bryant on CD lamb, CD lamb. Who's a top 10 receiver. I mean, let's just face it. Everything that was constructed blew up in Bill Belichick's face. And honestly, I don't I don't want to have the conversation of it's time for him to go. But it might have to it might come down to that, you know, regardless of, of this Shula's record, because 
the way that things are going, the way it's constructed and with all the injuries that they have, this is only maybe like a five win team or whatever, and that you're going to be tanking and you're going to be getting a high draft pick. I mean, considering that this is where Belichick is after Tom Brady leaves. I mean, it, it wouldn't be setting well if I was Robert Kraft really for me. So I, I have a fear that Belichick's going to be gone sooner rather than later. I mean, maybe he's gone as both a coach and a GM, but at least as a GM, I'd love to see him out of there and not have uh, full responsibilities for that. The other guy whose future is in question is Mac Jones. I mean, I'm a big, I was a big Mac Jones believer, but even I'm starting to have doubt. The fact that he got benched in the third quarter after going 12 of 21 for a buck 50 and two interceptions. I mean, not only that, but he lost a fumble for a scoop and score. He threw a pick six and not even, you know, statistically in that category, he just made really, really bad decisions. You know, when, when he saw the pressure coming, he, he panics, you know, he rolled out of the pocket and he was thrown across his body off of his back foot. And it was just really, really bad decisions. And he just panicked. It, it was ultimately that now, the good thing, at least for this team, is they get the Saints, who have also struggled, where they have a shot to turn things around. But ultimately, when you look at big picture, when you still have teams on the schedule where you have to play the Dolphins again, you still have to play the Bills twice, you got to play the Chiefs, you got to play the... Uh, who else is out there? Uh, I'm trying to remember. The Chargers. Uh, you still have the Steelers. I mean, this... It's a daunting task. It's a really daunting task. And ultimately, I I hate to say it, but I don't think this is a playoff team. This is not a playoff team. Um, and considering, you know, the defense is going to struggle again. They're, they have a bunch of injuries, plus they lost their best pass rusher and their best uh, cornerback. And the offense isn't really giving you much belief either, considering how the offensive line is. Um I just hate to say it. I think this is a sub 500 team and I think they're going to miss the playoffs. So I, I hate to be that negative, but that's what I see happening uh, with the Patriots. Um, but now this is going to be kind of a weird transition. We're going to, we're going to go back to our conversation earlier on with Cooper Leonard as we continue. Let's get local and look back and into the future of the Boston Red Sox. All right, back here with Cooper Leonard. We talked about the MLB postseason preview, but we got to get a little bit local and talk about the Sox. Coop, obviously you were in touch with the Sox all year long. We'll just give it to you straight like this. Second straight year in last place. Second straight year at 78 and 84. Where do you personally think things went wrong for the Red Sox this year? I It's, it's a top-down approach. I... The players did exactly what I think ownership wanted them to do, and not so much ownership, but Heim Bloom wanted them to do. Um, and they were serviceable in that. They weren't to be relied on. And these were a bunch of guys that you were just hoping were band-aids for each other, that when one goes down, you can bring someone else in to really do a patch job. The only trouble with that is you get into 162 games and you realize at the end of the realize at the end of the season that that patch job left a whole lot of holes in your boat. Uh, something that could have fixed it. I don't know, tiring it up in at the trade deadline, making sure that you patch things where it very noticeably things were gaping holes. I mean, we knew all season, we knew going into the season, starting pitching was going to be 
a massive itch, issue. And that's where things started to go downhill. When you start bringing your bullpen in to supplement some of those guys that you're losing with Chris Sale or with Garrett Whitlock or with Tanner Houck. And again, none of these are any issues that are, I think, placed upon the players. A lot of this has to do with injuries and the fact that the roster construction wasn't built around anything where you were getting insurance plans for these guys. So you get to the deadline, you've taxed your bullpen, you're now really focused on what we can do to actually make sure we can start games off on a right note. So the easy answer would have been, in my mind, trying to move away from Corey Kluber and trying to bring in someone that maybe would be more serviceable. I mean, you're not going to get anything for Corey Kluber, but you can package him up with some of your younger guys that you know, the Red Sox are, in some minds, a top three, top five farm system now. You can package him, clear some of your payroll, bring in an arm that can actually get you through the end of the season. I think that would have been the thing to do. You you had guys like Paxton laying around. You had guys like Verdugo who were going to get into the offseason and have a whole lot of questions on what to do with him. It, at some point, you have to look at Hein Bloom and say, what are you doing to actually make sure this team gets into the, the postseason? And that is why he's no longer here. That, I think, with the Yankee series, which would have been the last series that you saw him as a Red Sox executive, uh, it kind of proved that you had two bottom-of-the-barrel teams. No one wanted to come out to see them. People were trying to sell their tickets on the secondary market for a dollar, and that's the nail in the coffin. So it, at the end of the day, it was the fact that Hein Bloom couldn't pull the trigger to make this team a more competitive team. They were there. It wasn't that they were a bad team. It was just that they were a meandering team that couldn't get that last piece. Yeah, you and I were here for that uh, doubleheader on that Thursday when 30, even five minutes before our pregame show got underway, we get the news that Heim Bloom is fired. A little, a little and, chaotic at the studio. Well, I also saw you dancing in the hallways, which made you very happy. Uh, but <laughs> at least, at least... I, I didn't I didn't hate Heim Bloom. <laughs> I just didn't appreciate some of the stuff he did. I Listen, I think it's undeniable that he improved the farm system. And I, of course. I think it's kind of unfortunate that... I do think the Red Sox are in position to win a World Series, maybe not next year, but within the next few years with the crop of talent that they have. It's just going to take someone to actually put the pieces around that talent once they're up here. And I, Heimbloom was never going to be the guy to do that. Ownership saw that, and they eventually had to make that tough decision. It, it stinks. It, you know, it, It's not like someone that you hated, and it's not like he was pushing the team in the wrong direction. He was trying to push them in the right direction. I just, I think what he was accustomed to doing at a level with the raise was just not going to cut it here yeah exactly and then you also have the argument that he's just doing what ownership wanted him to do and sort of getting the yep. payroll back on track so in sticking with that position though we've we've seen a lot of names like you had mentioned in our previous segment about mike hazen uh there's talks about moving up eddie romero maybe sam fold from the phillies um you don't have to give me a name but tell me what are you expecting from whoever gets into that role. Are you looking for this new general manager or chief baseball, whatever title they want to give? What specifically are you looking from them to do with this Red Sox team? Uh, I, to be completely in, I'm glad that you're saying not a single name because it, the Red Sox really haven't indicated what direction they want to go in. On Monday's presser that Sam Kennedy and Cora had, they had even mentioned that they have a list of names. They haven't even started interviewing though. And I think that's because they're also still trying to figure out what direction they want to go in and who's going to be the best fit to get them. As Sam Kennedy said, competing for a world series next year. Um, 
what that is going to take is some, someone that is willing to, I think, really be able to spend. I believe that the Red Sox are going to be heavy spenders this year. They've indicated that they want to go out and spend. I know ownership is in love with the Japanese market, and I know that we will likely be getting into another topic uh, that is near and dear to my heart <laughs> over the course of this past year. But I, I think what they're going to look for is someone that's experienced with spending, maybe not in the first hand, because they have said that they're willing to bring in a first-time GM or first-time chief baseball officer. So they've said a whole lot of things of they want someone that can spend, they want someone that has that big market identity. But I think even they are really unsure of what they really want because they know that they can't really get away from what Bloom was creating. Um, Sam Kennedy had even said in that presser, he still thinks that the Red Sox can build and be winners. I think that's somewhat impossible. I think they've already built, and I think they're probably going to go more towards the winning side of where you need to start spending. Uh, but that's not to say that they don't want to bring in someone that's attentive to their their farm system. So I think that's what you're probably going to see coming down the stretch. And as names really start to sift out, I've been someone since the jump. I really want to see Eddie Romero. He's been with the Red Sox for a while now. A lot of the the foreign talent that the Red Sox bring in organically, he is typically having his fingerprints all over that. Sedane Raphael was someone that he's big on. Miguel Blaze, who is still in the farm system and coming up, and a lot of people haven't heard of yet, give him a Google because he is absolutely exciting and he is someone that Eddie Romero has had his fingerprints on. So it's it'll be interesting what they end up doing. Uh, but as far as you know, sifting out what they actually want to do, I don't think anyone has a real idea of what's going to happen there. Yeah, there's no really clues. As you said, they haven't given us a plan or an indication as to what they were looking for. But whoever goes into that will definitely have a ton of talent, um, a very young core. Um, let's look into the crystal ball in the offseason uh, when we get into sort of that free agency period. I know for people that follow you, you are very, very big on the Shohei Otani sweepstakes. You've been driving <laughs> that bandwagon. Maybe it's you, boss man Ken Laird, and maybe a couple of other guys. Just give us give us your pitch as to why the Red Sox should be in and try to sign Shohei Otani. So I, as a as a joke tweet last year or this past year in January, it feels like last year now. Uh, I it was right after I believe Chris Martin was signed, and I I kind of just tweeted I I feel like with every dumb or I feel like with every uh, one year short term contract that the Red Sox keep handing out, they're just setting themselves up to <laughs> sign Otani. You know, they wanted they want enough money off the books in order to do that. And I said that, you know, tongue in cheek as a joke. Uh, and then more stuff started to come out, you know, ownership is actually very interested in the way that he's able to control the Japanese market. If people don't remember, if they weren't paying attention during the World Baseball Classic, 98% of every TV in Japan was turned on for the World Baseball Classic to watch him, which that that is something that is undeniable when you look at the fact that baseball is a business. At the end of the day, John Henry cares about making money as much as he cares about winning World Series because he knows World Series, well, that's going to bring in more money. Uh, if you fall short, well, at least you have Shohei Otani to get you a whole lot of eyeballs on your product. And I think that's the direction they're going to move in. Uh, do I think that it will actually happen? I don't know because <laughs> he's now coming off an injury where it's going to set him up to be a DH. And I know that Alex Cora has said this last couple of weeks that Rafi Devers is going to be your third base next year. 
or you're a third baseman next year. Um, Justin Turner, whether he opts in or opts out, who knows, but he was mixing up time as DH with Tristan Cassis last year. Adam Duvall, hopefully going to opt out. It would be nice to see him back here, but I think it would be nice money and nice, you know, position, uh, like alignment to be able to do what you want with that because he was also taking up time at the DH position. So it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to bring in Shohei Otani, unfortunately. It doesn't, it doesn't. Of course, who wouldn't want Shohei Otani and who wouldn't want to see him on your team? Who says no as your the... podcast title properly exactly. explains. <laughs> um, but it, it's more of a sense of you're not going to turn into the Angels, but you're also not going to do a whole lot with Shohei Otani in that spot. Now, maybe a year from, from next year, you know, we're looking two years down the road and finally he can pitch, but it's also, do you want to take that shot after you know how many different pitchers have we brought in that were injured and we weren't really too sure what we were going to do with them so right now i i if we're going to spend big and you're going to spend on a japanese player yamamoto is the guy to do it but i you can't deny how giddy i think every red sox fan would be if they were to wake up and see shohei otani rocking the red b um, well you're it'll be you're tough the- it'll be a tough sell you're the one right. making all making them giddy with the New Balance <laughs> and the Yoshida and all those tweets out Listen, there on X it's, or formerly Twitter. It is a 16 minute bike ride from the New Balance <laughs> headquarters to Fenway Park. That is no coincidence at all. <laughs> Part of the rehab process but, for Otani. I, don't know. I mean, we, yeah, yeah, just set him up on the bike and let him go. But um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, it'll be interesting to see if that happens. It, it would be really, it would be fun, but it's also more of a does it make sense in the long term. Yeah, yeah, of course, as you said, everyone would want Otani just for, as you said, big market and baseball itself. It'd be kind of good. Um, before we let you go, I'll give you one last Sox question really quickly because we've been very down. You know, obviously we mentioned what they did wrong and that Shoyo Otani might be possible. Is there something about this Sox team that at least gets you excited for 2024? I mean, we saw a lot of bright spots, you know. In terms, maybe compared to 2022, it was a more exciting year. But is there anything that happened in 2023 with the Sox that at least gives you hope, gives you some kind of optimism that maybe you could spread out to the Red Sox nation? Oh, if I if I have to be the one to to bear that that weight and do that for <laughs> Red Sox nation, um, no, I think it's it's exactly what I kind of just came off of there, where I said John Henry is going to want to spend. Um, you know, no one can promise that the Red Sox are going to be able to put a product out on the field. I think we've seen that the last couple of years. Um, and even with, like I said, with the Mets, like you can even promise to spend and put out a product that has a couple Hall of Famers on that lineup, but it still doesn't promise that you are going to stack up with how baseball is today. I mean, it's a completely different game than maybe like what we grew up with. And I think Heim Bloom was chasing that. I Like I said, I don't think he was going in that direction. But we now have the presence of mind where we are going to go out of our way to try and make it a competitive team as far as going into the season. Going into the season last year, we all kind of accepted this was a mediocre team. And that's what we all saw. So we now get to go into the season where hopefully they end up spending in this offseason. And right now we have the presence of mind that they are going to spend. So that is a reason to be optimistic. That is a reason to hang in there. And you're also going to see a lot of new names come into play. I think whether you were tuning in this year, or tuning in a little bit with the young guys that were in the farm system, there's still a lot of guys in the farm system that will be coming up within the next two years. Marcelo Meyer, the name that you're always touting and hearing 
but Roman Anthony is also a name that I, I think a lot of people are going to have to start paying attention to as he leapfrogs Marcelo Myers on a, a lot of the prospect lists. So it, there is reason to be optimistic. There is reason to hang in there. I think 2022, 2023 will be looked back as kind of hinge years on where this team goes in the future and that there are low points and everything, but hopefully it's, it's an ebb and it's not so much of we're staying down in this valley, but that they're able to climb out of it and it can be kind of a rallying point behind it. Yeah. Here's to hoping here in Red Sox nation. Yeah. Coop, thanks for, uh, for taking the time before we let you go. You can catch him as the video streamer on Gresh and Fourier, but also he's got the baseball isn't boring broadcast himself and Rob Bradford Coop. Just give a brief synopsis if people haven't tuned into Who Says No or Baseball Isn't Boring. What's that podcast all about? Oh, my gosh. So we got a Who Says No with the Brad Foe Show, which is a little bit more Red Sox-centric. I do that with Sammy and Gordo and along with Pat Brown, uh, kind of just dropping up what roster decisions are happening and whatnot and how they will shape up to be what we would like to see out of that. Uh, some movings and shakings happening with that in the next coming weeks, hopefully. So that's a little bit of an exclusive teaser for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but with baseball isn't boring, Rob has been leading the charge on that. He's getting every single interview under the sun as far as what is important to baseball right now with players and you know a ton of front office people as well right now as playoffs kick off and those folks make themselves available. So for the next couple of weeks, you're going to be wanting to tune into baseball isn't boring to get some behind the scenes info, some scoops and whatnot from Rob as he had, I believe he's in Philly today. Uh, he's just a world stomper right now, but you can find that everywhere, anywhere, Odyssey podcast or Odyssey downloads. Um, and you have some merch out as well. You got some t-shirts and some hats. Oh, swing juice. Go ahead and check them out. I, it keeps me nice and warm. We've got sweatshirts, uh, anything that you could want for for Nana or for Grandpa, feel free to get that something for them. As it gets cold, you know that you need to keep the old people warm during the cold months. Uh, <laughs> so it, there are countless stuff that you can get. If you even want to just get get a couple of t-shirts and make a quilt for them, get, do that. They, you'll be grandchild of the year. Uh, baseball uh, isn't boring is everywhere around us. Cooper Leonard, thanks so much for joining us here on Let Me Speak. Uh, hopefully baseball gives us some success and the Sox can Uh, Find a way to turn it around. Uh, Thanks again, Coop, for joining us here. Thanks for having me, Joe. as we always do we go to our lol moment of the week before that thank you very much again to cooper leonard from weei always a tremendous thrill to talk to and i'm glad we could get him on the podcast he'll definitely be a future guest so stay tuned to that but into our lol moment we are actually going to the nba for media day because jimmy buckets is back at it again jimmy butler goes to media day with another just ridiculous hairstyle take a look at the hairstyle he brought here for 2023 media day everyone and even jimmy himself was saying he was in an emo phase you know i I wrote a bunch of stuff down here you know he just basically looks like your classic gothic kid you know with the with the straight hair like that parted to the side and then obviously the piercing uh on his lip and in his eye i mean it's just your classic goth kid i mean he looks like he should be gracing the cover of Vanity Fair. I mean, even with a hairstyle, that's basically your classic 
uh, your classic soccer mom haircut where he looks like he should be dropping his kids off uh, to soccer practice in a minivan. Um, but, you know, luckily, the good thing is, is that he's doing this on purpose. And he, we kind of got the idea from that because um, the next day, today, he's back into braids. And then you remember last year he had the braids hung down and the clean shaven. And it got to a point where um, graphics departments weren't even using that photo. And he was using the 2021 uh, media photo or a profile picture when they're showing graphics and stuff like that. I mean, plus he never brought back last year's hair into the game. Let's, this was last year's hair. Just take a look at how it was. I mean, this hairstyle never saw the light of day in an NBA game. And I'm for certain that this hair is not going to see the light of day in an NBA game. But, you know, at least he's having fun with it. He's having fun. He's trolling everybody. He's having a good time with it. I mean, it's it's hard not to like Jimmy Butler the way he does this stuff. I mean, you saw Bam out of bio and Tyler Hero just like clowning him for that. And he's owning up to it, you know, at, at least he's owning up to it. That's that's the good thing. And he's having fun with all of this. So Jimmy Butler for once again, treating media day like a very rare school picture day. You've got yourself into this week's LOL moment of the week. And just like that, we are done with episode 88 of Let Me Speak. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. If you're watching us on YouTube or listening to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts, give me a follow on X or Twitter, if you still want to call it Twitter. Instagram, just search my name, Joe Braverman. Follow this podcast as well. Uh, all you got to do is search on Instagram and Facebook at Let Me Speak Podcast. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in, and we will see you next time for episode 89 of Let Me Speak. Later.